This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, your Star Trek books and comics show. I'm just one of your hosts, Dan Gunther, and joining me tonight, as he does always, is the renowned Bruce Gibson. Bruce, how are you this evening? I'm doing great. I really am, because I just love talking Star Trek books, and it's like when I had a somewhat crappy day, not to say that today was, but it kind of went downhill at towards the end this lifts me back up it makes me happy yeah i do have to tell you this is always a highlight of my week is getting to sit down with you or you and matt or you and maybe a star trek author and talking about star trek books so always always an exciting highlight of my week and i hope dear listener a highlight of your week as well well not only are we going to be talking to author David R. George III later on about his new Star Trek Deep Space Nine novel, The Long Mirage. We also have some exciting book news this week. A lot of things on the docket, including a new comic that we're going to be talking about. But first, now this is really exciting to me, Bruce. Uh, I, I don't know if you read the autobiography of James T. Kirk. I did. Yeah, it was that was a lot of fun. I thought that was a really neat idea, you know, an autobiography, so ostensibly written by Kirk himself, but actually written by David A. Goodman. Now, we've got another one of these on the way, and this time we are getting the autobiography of Jean-Luc Picard coming from Titan Books this coming September. Yes, uh, Captain Jean-Luc Picard and his autobiography, which I think... Um, I'm just as interested in reading this as I was the Kirk book, and hopefully this will be successful because I'd love to read Cisco and Janeway and Archer and so on and so forth mm-hmm. and, and just keep getting books like this all the time. Even uh, non-captains, I think, would be interesting. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think we've mentioned before on Literary Trek, Star Trek is the story of Worf. So maybe someday we'll get an autobiography of the son of Moog. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if Star Trek is the story of Worf, then we probably have already heard his autobiography. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. Well, this one looks really cool. The back cover description says, The autobiography of Jean-Luc Picard is an in-world memoir chronicling the story of one of the most celebrated names in Starfleet history. His extraordinary life and career makes for dramatic reading. Court-martials, unrequited love, his capture and torture at the hands of the Cardassians, his assimilation with by the Borg, and countless other encounters as captain of the celebrated Starship Enterprise. 
David A. Goodman, who also wrote the autobiography of James T. Kirk, has spent the last 26 years writing for television. His credits include The Golden Girls, Star Trek Enterprise, Futurama, and on that show he wrote one of my favorite Star Trek homages, Where No Fan Has Gone Before. And of course, he's a writer for Family Guy, where he was the head writer for six years. So this is a guy with a lot of writing experience and kind of a really unique ability to bring a little bit of unexpected humor into a lot of these stories. And that was definitely the case with Kirk's autobiography. And I'm sure we'll be seeing that with Picard's as well. Maybe he'll work in Peter Griffin from Family Guy into uh, the autobiography of Jean-Luc Picard. You just <laughs> never know. That could very well be. I mean, you know, Picard could could be doing something and, and I don't know, spills Earl Grey on himself. And there's, you know, Ensign Griffin off to the side just going, <laughs> wow i didn't know you did impersonations of peter griffin i really only do the laugh that's about it <laughs> can you give us your impersonation of the golden girls uh that i'm probably a little bit uh less qualified to do <laughs> oh back in saint olaf there's mine oh Done. nice that's it. Yep, yep. very good okay so what's the we got something else coming out uh we have Section 31, Control. And that's the release later this month on March 28th by David Mack. It's another Bashir story in the Section 31 series of books. So, of course, that we will be reviewing on a upcoming Literary Treks uh, that first part of April. Absolutely. So make sure everybody to get that book. Now, this is March 28th. That's the official date but i've been noticing lately that the hard copies are coming out a little earlier in stores mm -hmm. yeah if you uh you know keep an eye on your local bookstores because absolutely these books have been hitting shelves sometimes up to a week before the actual street date so that's really exciting so we've got section 31 control coming out soon this is a very very anticipated book by me i you know there's there's been a couple little delays on this one but highly anticipated, really looking forward to continuing that Bashir story. And I, I kind of misled you a little earlier. We actually do have two comics that are out this week. Uh, but the first one, which is Waypoint number four, we're actually going to put off till next week. Uh, th that one came out on March the 8th. Uh, we're going to be talking about that on the next episode. And we're going to have some special guests to talk about that one because that one features an enterprise story and there were some uh some other hosts from another star trek podcast on trek fm you might be able to guess who it is who uh wanted to join us to talk about that one so right not just one but two hosts oh yeah that's true so it's it's going to be crowded here next week but you know we've got some room we can we can pull up the other chair we we'll, we'll make it work we'll make it work and in Waypoint number four, it's not just an Enterprise story, but there's also a Next Generation story. So in every Waypoint, you get two stories for the price of one. Excellent. Yeah. So really looking forward to that. I've really been enjoying Waypoint. So, you know, it's it's definitely a, a different take on Star Trek stories. So we're looking forward to that one. And the second comic that we got out this week is actually one that I'm really excited about because this is the Star Trek Deviations comic issue one. Uh, so we're going to talk a little bit about that one. And uh, if you haven't picked this up, I'm, I'm going to start this off by saying you should grab it. It's it's outside the norm for Star Trek comic, but it's really good. 
uh, kind of a bit of a spoiler for my end thoughts on it, but wow, I, I really enjoyed this one. What did you think about it, Bruce? Yeah, at first I wasn't too sure. Uh, I started reading it and I was like, okay, this is really going out there. So IDW is doing these comic one shots called deviations for not just the Star Trek line, but other lines like Orphan Black, X-Files, My Little Pony and Judge Dredd, where they take a story and totally just or take a franchise, a, a title and just totally change things up. I don't want to say it's like in another universe necessarily or a different timeline. It's just, you know what, we're going to, we're going to shake things up and tell a what if story or just totally redo the universe in a different way and, and put it, you know, up on its head. And so that's what we got here in deviations. And this is involving the next generation crew. So when it's starting off, it's almost like Mad Max in a way. That's what it reminded me of. And, uh, it, it, it was, it's just really odd. And at first I'm like, okay, if this isn't, if it's just taking Star Trek characters and making them into something totally different then this isn't Star Trek. But as we get further in it, I really started to get into it and it started to feel like a, like Star Trek, but in a different twist to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This one definitely is a slow burn. Uh, but like you say, I think a lot of the things that I really like about Star Trek are present in this story. So like you say, it's it's very Mad Max, post-apocalyptic. The conceit of the story basically is... I, so I thought it was that the Romulans had initiated first contact with Earth instead of the Vulcans. But as we read, that's actually not really the case. It looks like, you know, that kind of did happen in this universe. The Vulcans did have first contact, but the Romulans have kind of taken over or wiped out the Vulcans or, or something like that and have changed, changed history, not in the traditional Star Trek sense where you go back in time and change history, but they've erased, you know, parts of human history from the history books. And because earth is a conquered planet by the Romulans, they're kind of under the boot heel and of, of the Romulan empire. And they're kind of controlling what the humans learn and that sort of thing. So they have this whole, history that is a lie and it's kind of this quest to find the one man who knows the true history and about this weird thing out there that's called the federation and there's this base that they they have to try and get to it, it's it's really interesting you guys really need to check it out if you haven't uh it it's really cool and i really can't wait to see where it goes from here and that last page oh man i it's a, it's an ending that you kind of see coming, but at the same time, it gave me the feels. I was right there with it. It gives you those uh, Trek little goosebumps, right? Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it does end with a question mark of to be continued. So even though this is a one-shot, it there may be a follow-up to it sometime later. So we'll just have to see what happens. But I do think, I think the intent was that there was not first contact with Vulcans, but with Romulans. Um, but at the same time, I think maybe things were forming the way we thought they do and, or they do in the prime universe. And then it started to change. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's, I just, there's the, um, Donnie Cates is the author of the comic and he wrote something in the back of this about, you know, why he wrote this and where he got the ideas. And I think he even acknowledges there that the idea was to approach as, as the, uh, Romulans mm -hmm. doing first contact. But anyway, it's just, it, it definitely is 
interesting. I, I will say that um, the characters are a little different and Data's head <laughs> is used for something for Jordy. It's, kind of strange but anyway it's it's definitely interesting it is yeah yeah it'll definitely make you go wow i've never seen this kind of star trek before but yet it's star trek yeah awesome and we do have uh one last little bit of news as well so the star trek discovery novel the one written by david mack that's going to be coming out kind of uh shortly after star trek discovery premieres has been given a title so this this novel will be called Desperate Hours, which is, I think, a really cool title. Makes me think of kind of wartime type stuff or, or something like that. Now, we don't have a firm release date for it yet, but I talked to David Mack and he says it will, they're aiming to coordinate it to follow shortly after the series premiere. So hopefully once we get that date nailed down and again we've heard from the president of cbs that's just going to be late summer early fall so no set date yet but hopefully once we learn that we'll get a a release date for this novel shortly thereafter so really looking forward to that one and really excited that one of star trek's premier writers is is writing this one as well and i think i just read on his facebook that he had actually just finished his uh complete first draft for it so really excited yes. to see that one yeah i am too i wish he would just send me that draft i'll read it for him I'll oh yeah no we'll, we'll be test readers absolutely <laughs> yeah so david mack hey you're hearing it here we're, we're willing to help you know just <laughs> just send it our way and uh you know even if you know the show producers need some help they can contact us too definitely all right. And we do have also one last little thing uh, that I see you put in the uh, outline here. We've got an a interesting review on iTunes from a listener. Uh, this is great because we haven't had an opportunity to read uh, iTunes reviews lately. So this is exciting to get a glowing review from an iTunes u- uh, listener. Why don't you go ahead and, and read that review there, Bruce? We actually got a glowing review? Wow, this is impressive. No. <laughs> So anyway, this review uh, was from Delwina on iTunes, and it says, Until a couple of months ago, I had never read a Star Trek novel or comic in my life. After listening to the host's enthusiastic description of their latest reads, I have since read excellent books by Dayton Ward and Christopher L. Bennett and even some of the comics. What was I waiting for all this time? Don't be like me. Download this podcast and find out what you've been missing out on. These guys won't steer you wrong. P.S. I'm in the middle of Federation by Judith and Garfield Reeves Stevens, and it's a corker, too. <laughs> Excellent. Wow. Thank you so much for that review, Delwina. That, that's really exciting. Glad to hear that our podcast has led you to Star Trek novels. And that's that's really exciting for us because, obviously, we really love these novels. That's the reason we do this show so, you know, to lead people to be reading some really great books is, is that's excellent. Like, I, I couldn't be happier. And Federation, one of my favorites as well. So really, really glad you're delving into that one. Yeah, that brings back fond memories uh, when Federation came out. I remember reading that. And it's been a long time since I've read it. So <laughs> maybe we'll do that one. You know, our list keeps getting longer and longer of books we want to do on the show. It's just yeah. Like, <laughs> I would love to do that one. I don't think it's been done on Literary Treks I don't yet. think it has either. And actually, uh, for me, I have to say, I only read that one a couple of years ago. <laughs> so I was a, 
really? yeah, I was a late comer to that one as well, but it very quickly became one of my favorites. So yeah, I'll, uh, I'll add that to the ever lengthening list. <laughs> yeah. I've talked to people that don't really read much Star Trek novels. They'd like to, but they don't have time, but they listen to this show Ooh. to hear what we're talking about so they can keep up with what's going on with the novels. And then sometimes it prompts them, even though we might do spoilers, it still prompt them to want to go and now read the novel because it sounded so good. So, you know, it, people are either listening because they read or they don't read or whatever, but uh, it's, we definitely like talking about the novels and we appreciate you guys all listening in. Oh, that's really cool because Actually, before I was a host on the show, I was also just a listener. And uh, even though I had read a lot of Star Trek novels, there were a few that were covered on the show that I had never read. And I absolutely listened to those episodes as well. So, for example, the great episode that uh, Matt and Chris did on uh, the book Shadows on the Sun. Uh, I hadn't read that one, but that episode really made me want to read it. So, yeah, absolutely. All the reasons people want to listen to the show, you're all welcome here. And if we lead one or two of you to pick up a Star Trek novel that you wouldn't have otherwise, so much the better. So if you want to leave a review for us on iTunes, please do that. We're very happy to see new reviews there. And those reviews help people find us on iTunes. And if you don't use iTunes, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. We're on TuneIn, Stitcher, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, all the ways that you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to get in contact with us, there are a number of ways you can do that. You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash trekfm. You can find us on Twitter at trekfm. And while you're on Facebook, check out the Babel Conference. That's our listeners only group. You can find that by typing in Babel Conference. That's B-A-B-E-L into the search field on Facebook. We have posts for all the new episodes of all the shows on the Trek FM network there. And another way you can keep in contact with us is through our group on Goodreads. Just go to goodreads.com and search for Literary Treks. There you'll find discussions about all the Star Trek books and comics that we talk about and even the ones that we don't feature on the show. And you'll find bookshelves featuring all the books that we have talked about in pre previous episodes and everything coming up in future episodes so that you can keep up to date. Well, we've got a great guest for you in David R. George III coming up, so stay tuned after the page flip to hear that. Well, we have a really special treat for you guys today. We've got an author of the latest Deep Space Nine book to be published, The Long Mirage. Please welcome writer David R. George III. David, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dan. Happy to be here. How are you doing, Bruce? I'm doing well. This is our first time on a show together. That's right. Looking forward to it. Are, are you nervous? Because what if I say I don't like your book? <laughs> I'm perfectly fine with that. I mean, it wouldn't be the most enjoyable uh, interview in the world, perhaps. But yeah, I learned a long time ago that no matter how good a writer you are or how good an actor or director or painter or dancer, any artistic endeavor, you're not going to please everybody. People have different tastes. They have different sensibilities. It's all subjective, and I'm good with that. So, in fact, the finest review, I mean, as a review, just a literary critique of anything I've ever written was a negative review. But it was a great review. I disagreed with some of it, but it was a really good review. It just didn't like what I had done. So, you know, I'm good. I'm all good. <laughs> well, that's not going to happen, so don't worry. <laughs> yeah, definitely. 
even better. <laughs> well, let's uh, jump right in. So, of course, Deep Space Nine, like uh, the rest of the shared continuity post-Nemesis, is kind of this ongoing story that's been building over the years from novel to novel. Previous to this, your last DS9 novel was Ascendance, and this new novel takes place right after the events of that story's epilogue. So why don't you uh, tell us where the characters are before the start of this novel and really set us up for The Long Mirage. Okay, well, yeah, we, as you say, we've been telling this story since the end of the series. So I guess the end of the series was in December 2375, and we're now all the way up to uh, early 2386. And so a lot's happened. A lot happened in the very last episode of Deep Space Nine, scattering characters to the winds. I mean, uh, Odo went back to the Dominion, and Worf became... Uh, uh, ambassador to the Klingon Empire, and and you know all Rom became uh, uh, the Grand Nagus. So all, all these characters have scattered. And in the grand tradition of Deep Space Nine, the books have also had major changes in the characters' lives. Uh, that was really a hallmark of the show. That you know, Doctor Bashir is this wet behind the ears neophytes straight out of Starfleet Academy. Oh, no, he's not. He's a super genius who's been genetically engineered. Ah, okay. So the characters changed a lot. The situations changed a lot in the show. And we've, we've tried to do the same thing in the novels. And to that end, in the 10 or, 10 or so years that the characters have existed since the end of the series, lots has happened. Um, Captain Sisko has come back from uh, the, uh, the Celestial Temple, Kira Norris, who became the commanding officer of Deep Space Nine, has stepped down from that to pursue uh, a vocation in the Bajoran religion. She's actually now worked her way up to Vedic. And uh, Ro Laren, who first appeared in the Next Generation television series, is now the commanding officer of Deep Space Nine. And even Deep Space Nine itself has seen some, I would say, fairly dramatic uh, uh, moments in in the, that ten year period. I, I don't want to give any spoilers, but the station itself has endured some remarkable moments. Let's just say in, in that time frame. Um, anyway, I think you what you're mainly getting at though is the the, the characters are mostly featured in the novel, and uh, Kira, who I said is a Vedic, she was believed lost in the Bajoran wormhole two years prior to the beginning of this story. Now, we've the, we, the readers have seen her in that time, but the Bajoran Wormhole collapsed for a couple of years. It was, there was no indication whether it even still existed. And uh, they, that happened in the books, and Kira was believed lost. She actually ended up living another life um, and then emerged from the Wormhole on the Gamma Quadrant, had a, an, a, an adventure there, and then came back to the, through the wormhole and is now as this book begins coming back to the current time frame and to deep space nine and to Bajor. And she is, you got to reacclimate herself and, and uh, some things happened that uh, surprise her. Uh, in the meantime, uh, Morn through, because of some of the dramatic things that have happened on deep space nine, I don't know if I should say what happened, what's happened on deep space nine or not. I don't know if uh, we're worried about spoilers for, you know, five books ago or whatever, but... Uh, I, I think we're pretty okay, like, generally spoiling what's been going on with Deep Space Nine, for sure. <laughs> well, uh, 
Deep Space Nine blew up. (laughs) (laughs) Deep Space Nine was destroyed uh, in one of the books. There's uh, now a Federation-like alliance of worlds uh, called the Typhon Pact that includes the Romulans and the Zanketi and the Green and the Tholians, the six six, uh, nation states and all. And some rogue factions of the Typhon Pack ended up in a firefight at Deep Space Nine and ended up destroying the station. And uh, a new station, a new Starfleet station, has been built in its stead. It took a couple of years to build, but it's now functional, operational. And after the station was destroyed, Starfleet set up on Bajor for a couple of years to keep bring, you know, keep uh, managing the space lanes around Bajor and, and to keep the Federation Starfleet presence. Uh, Morn, during that time, also relocated to Bajor, but he, he grew depressed. Quark thought it was maybe survivor's guilt. He lost friends when the station was destroyed. Uh, and about six months after that, after the station was destroyed, Morn disappeared. He didn't disappear as though he had been abducted or the, the, the victim of foul play, because a few months after that, he, he sent payment for his considerable bar bill to Quark and, and uh, made good on that. So Quark knows he's alive, but he's worried about his friend. And so for a while now, he's been hiring private investigators to try and find Morn. And a good portion of the long mirage is that search for more and Quark's search for more because some other unusual things happened during the course of that search in this book that uh, sort of bring Quark up short, if you will, although he starts short to begin with. But uh, <laughs> so that, that's a that's a good 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 chunk of the book is 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 Quark trying to locate more. In the meantime, after the destruction of the station, Vic Fontaine and his Holosuite program were saved by being placed in a simulator, uh, a small portable device that, that Quark took off. The, actually, Morn carried it, but that Quark got off of the station before it was destroyed. Uh, but through various circumstances, it's been impossible to get Vic reloaded to a hollow suite in the intervening two years. And when the new station opens for business, Nog tries to load up the program and, and ends up having some problems. He, there are some technical issues with the new hollow suites. He finally is able to get uh, Vic Fontaine's program loaded, but he discovers that uh, Vic is no longer performing at the nightclub in the casino. Uh, he fi- finds him in, uh, in essentially in squalor in this terrible hotel uh, in, still in Las Vegas, but that seemingly down on his luck. And then at some point, Nog sees Vic get abducted by three thugs. And uh, that's where this story starts for Nog. He's decided he's got to go find Vic, rescue him, you know, get, get him safe. And, and so he uh, and a crewmate, John Candlewood, who we've seen in, is the, the chief science officer aboard the station, who we've seen in previous novels, goes with him and they they want to try and and find Vic and rescue him from whatever problems he's encountered inside his Holosuite program because the program's still been running for two years. It's just that it's had no interaction with anybody outside the program. So whatever's happened inside the program has happened inside the program. And then the third uh, component of this is uh, that there's some, well, 
um, somebody that Roe had, somebody emerged from the wormhole a, while, uh, a few months earlier that uh, appears to be like a Cora Milan, the poet that came from Bajor's past uh, into the present in a, in a televised episode of Deep Space Nine. And uh, it appears to be the same sort of thing, although, although this man, uh, uh, Altech Dons, a uh, doctor, appears to be from farther back in Bajor's past. And over the previous few months, he's formed an, a romantic attachment with Ro Laren. But it turns out that he actually also interacted with Kira when she was inside the wormhole and thought lost. And they also had a romantic relationship, although Kira was sort of living in the guise of another another person and another life. Uh, but she had interaction with, with this man, and they, they formed a romantic attachment. So now Kira's back. Altec Dons seems to have emerged from the past, and Roe Laren is there, and so there's there's all of that to deal with. So am I, am I leaving anything out? <laughs> No, I think that's that, that's pretty much uh, where we find everyone. Absolutely, um, kind of jumping to the uh, the the hologram story with Vic Fontaine. I have to say, I really enjoyed this one, and this is something to me that you know has been done a lot. There's been a lot of holodeck stories and that sort of thing, and I think the genius of Vic Fontaine and the idea that's carried forward in your novel is to make the reader or the viewer care about the holographic character because to me where those episodes fell down on the next generation is you know it, it didn't really matter you could shut the hologram the holo program down and whatever the the all the danger is gone but for this one i found myself really uh worried about vic and what would happen to him kind of seeing that through nog's eyes and it's also kind of interesting that we see it through candlewood's eyes as well that okay, it's just a hologram, but he doesn't know Vic like we do. So what was that like kind of writing those two competing um, positions on, I guess, maybe the sentience or the importance of Vic Fontaine? Well, I think it's, it's, it's uh, there, I think you articulated it uh, well, but I think there's also another sort of component which you kind of touched on, which is in this case, we're, we're very worried about a holographic character because we've come to know that holographic character. And there is some notion that he is sentient. I mean, perhaps more than some notion. I think we've been led to believe as an audience that he absolutely is self-aware and, and that he, it's not just that he's been coded to appear self-aware. We think that he's self-aware. So there is a component now of, of losing uh, a holographic character and it actually having some meaning, but we we also look at the sort of the reverse attitude of that, which, as you said, has been a problem in some television episodes. That uh, so you know what do we care if he was a holographic character? And and Nog's friend and crewmate Candlewood has that attitude. Like he's just a hologram. But the third component of that that story is to me sort of the very maybe the most important one. I mean, Vic, if Vic is sentient, obviously his survival is very important. But if he's, even if, whether he is or whether he's not, his loss would be very difficult for Nog, who is sentient, who is a character that we know and love, because we've seen his relationship with Vic. We saw it in particular in the show when he lost, when, when Nog lost a leg and had to have it replaced with a, a prosthetic 
limb. Uh, he, he was really helped a tremendous amount by Vic emotionally. And so those two characters have bonded. And it, to Nog, it's sort of irrelevant whether he's sentient or he's not sentient. It, it, it's what's important is the bond that they have and the, how it feels to Nog. And so if we end up losing Vic, that's a real loss. I mean, it may be a loss because we're losing Vic, but it's absolutely a loss for Nog. And to me, that's really sort of the heart of that story. Yeah, this novel deals a lot with relationships. And I haven't really thought so much about the Nog and Vic relationship as much as I did the others that are in this book. But you're right. It's like when I first started reading the book, I was almost thinking the same way that Candlewood that was his name, right? Candle. Yeah. Candlewood. Yeah, John he was, Candlewood. Yeah. yeah. He was very much of, you know, it's just a, a holodeck program. This is a, a holodeck, uh, character. And I thought, well, yeah, I mean, I like Vic, but I mean, he's right. But then at the same time, I'm like, well, wait, this is no different than the doctor on Voyager or data on the next generation on the enterprise. It's, you know, whether that character is real or not, you, you form some kind of relationship and some tie to them. And, and I think all the things that Nog has been through and there's, and he has his losses that he's been through, he still needs Vic. He needs that accomplishment to try to fulfill saving someone that whether they're real or not, it means a lot to him. Well, I think that's right. And I think Nog feels, even if he doesn't think about it consciously, although he probably has at some point, Vic saved him. I mean, emotionally, you know, when Log lost his leg, Vic was the person who got him back on the beam. And uh, that has really been a core component, I think, of Nog. Um, and you know what? You're right. You could argue that Data is an android. So what, does it care? what do we care if we lose him? And even if you do make the argument that, yeah, Data just appears to be alive, uh, Data appears to be sentient and all that, but he's not really. It doesn't matter because the people around him who consider them consider him a friend, his loss would mean their loss, right? They they would they would just feel horribly at losing him. So uh, regardless of Vic's status, his loss would be a tremendous burden for Nog, and and you want to try and make the reader feel that as well, um, and that's why you actually talk about things from Candlewood's point of view and what you said was your point of view initially, which is, yes, it's a hologram. Well, let's, let's talk about that. Right. And yeah, it's just a hologram, but Candlewood actually comes around and, and says, you know what, even if he is just a hologram, this is going to impact you, Nog, and you're my friend. So that's why I'm happy to help. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So now Nog has that relationship and that tie to Vic, but at the same time we have our other Ferengi quark, who is missing Morn. He's mourning for Morn. So yeah, yeah. that's that's kind of an interesting relationship there, too. I mean, we know Morn was always in the bar, but now that Morn is missing, I mean, Quark really seems emotional about not having Morn around, and he's going out of his way to go find him. So tell us about that relationship. Well, you know, Quark is an interesting character to me because he's certainly in the show, and I think even in the books, he's constantly trying to demonstrate that his values are Ferengi values, that the things that are most important to him are the acquisition of profit and, and, and those things that are related to that. And yet, despite that, we see in Quark other, other characteristics. We see him in the TV series secretly 
that during the during the uh, occupation of Bajor by the Cardassians, he actually gave to uh, war orphans to the, to the orphans of the occupation. You know, he gave his own profit to help Bajoran orphans. That's that's not somebody for whom avarice is the only value. So Quark is he's a Ferengi. He's not human, but he's sort of I think in the series and and then in the books that follow the series, he has become human. He's become a more mature Ferengi. And, you know, he constantly is saying when he's, you know, upset about Morn being missing, that he's upset about it because Morn's his best customer, because he considered Morn's bar tab a long-term a long -term business asset. So, you know, he tries to justify this in terms of this ideal that he wants to live up to, this notion of being the quintessential Ferengi. But in truth, while there may be some some truth in that, but in reality, he actually has deep feelings of affection for Morn. He is his friend. And um, and I think in the course of this book, he even finally says, you know, forget about the prophet. He's my friend. I want to find him. And and so, yeah, he's been, he's been doing this Sort of initially when, when Warren disappeared, he, he didn't know that it was going to be for good. And so he expected that at some point he would come back. Uh, and when he didn't, that's when, you know, Quark got some private detectives. They didn't do such a good job. They couldn't find him. And finally, though, he settled on somebody who appears to be tracking Warren and getting closer and closer to him, trying to find out what's going on. And really, Quark just wants to make sure that he's okay and, and hope if his life is in shambles to help him get it back together. And they did something like this on Deep Space Nine on television in an episode called Who Mourns for Morn? Morn Disappears. But this is, I think, different from that. Even though it, it's similar, uh, Morn's missing. He's been missing for a much longer time. And there are different circumstances. Before, it just happened out of the blue and there didn't appear to be anything wrong. With this... He has suffered, along with many other people in the Bajoran system and in Starfleet, he suffered the loss of the, the station of Deep Space Nine, and with it, many people that he knew, many people he considered friends. And so it could be survivor's guilt, it could be simple simple loss, a simple sense of sadness, whatever it is, it's really gotten him upset. And so this might be a major component of why he's missing. And so, uh, you know, Quark, Quark just wants to find them. And they, there's no question that they have a relationship. I mean, that's, I mean, they, and of course, the joke on the show is that Moore never talks. Oh, yeah, but he's I mean, actually a he, real talker. He's a real talker. <laughs> and, in the, and certainly in the show and now in the books, there's constant references to how big a mouth Morn has, but we never hear him utter any dialogue. And in fact, I really, really, really wanted to put a line of dialogue in there that I would have <laughs> stolen whole from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, or, or uh, actually, I think it was Life, the Universe, and anything, but one of the Douglas Adams Hitchhiker books, where um, at some point somebody is railing at the late weed character, and he's say, he's responding with shorter and shorter sentences until he says, "quote dot 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 end quote." <laughs> And I, I wanted to have Morn say that, which is, of course, not saying anything. But I, I just, I couldn't do it. Oh, <laughs> that would have been brilliant. <laughs> but it, I just thought, well, if Morn's going to say anything, it would just be an ellipsis and not really anything. So, but anyway, didn't do that. Thought about it. 
One thing that kind of surprised me uh, getting into this book was, so the search for Morn, you know, ostensibly is all about, you know, trying to find Morn and that sort of thing. But in the way it plays out in the novel, which I thought was really interesting, is for Quark and Roe, it really serves as just kind of the backdrop for their uh their travels and, you know, trying to track down this private detective who's on Morn's trail. And it really becomes this really interesting exploration about the relationship between Roe and Quark, which, you know, that's something that that was introduced in the novels. And at first I thought, oh, that's kind of weird. But, you know, over the years, it it's kind of become this this thing that actually makes a lot of sense. And I found myself in this book really kind of rooting for them to kind of get back together. What was kind of writing that dynamic between the two of them like? I, for me, it was great fun. It was very satisfying because, you know, there are people, many people who are befuddled by Star Trek's endurance. Why is, how could Star Trek live for 50 years and beyond and then be so popular? To me, it's no mystery at all. It, 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 to me, there are two key components. One, of course, is this, this optimistic vision of the future and it, 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 a, a terribly inclusive future in which everybody gets a seat at the table. It's, it's a very winning way to look forward, a very positive way to look forward. But the second thing is that that message, that the embodiment of that theme, is carried by characters we relate to and who we love. And so uh, it's important to, you know, to keep that going in the books, obviously. And here I am trying to write. I mean, I've got my themes that I want to hit. I've got the things that I want to talk about and my subtext and all of that. But I also want to explore these characters. And I don't know if it was me. I think it might have been me who first got Quark and Roe together. And it may seem odd because you, you've got this, you know, seemingly this this tall, uh, wildly attractive woman and somebody who seems, by human standards, less attractive. You know, he's got the, the sharp and misaligned teeth and the gigantic ears and the widget nose and all of those things and is very short. And um, But, of course, people don't, I mean, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And, of course, there's a lot more to a person than their exterior. So it's, it's, it was fun to put them together and then to sort of find the justification, and I mean that in a positive way, the reasons, the genuine reasons that these two characters would bond. And I think initially um, in, in the books early on, it really came down to them both sort of bonding over being outsiders. I mean, Quark never, not under the Cardassians, not under the Bajorans, not in, under Starfleet, did he ever feel um, like he belonged, right? He was always an outsider on the station. Uh, and Roel Aaron, what we saw of her in Next Generation, I mean, she was in Starfleet, but she didn't really seem to belong. And, and then she was with the Maquis, a group of rebels. And, uh, you know, she's come back first into the Bajoran militia and then into Starfleet, and she wasn't really ready to do that in the book's Captain Picard encouraged her to, to rejoin Starfleet because she was ready to bolt. In fact, she was considering bolting with Quark when Starfleet, when the, the Federation admitted Bajor. They were both thinking, well, there's going to be no place for us on Deep Space Nine anymore. But Roe didn't think she could join Star, uh, Starfleet, and Quark didn't think that living in the moneyless Federation economy was going to be all that good for him. So, you know, they were ready. They talked about it. They were ready to go. And it's this 
this notion of being outsiders, of not being um, in with everybody else that sort of helped bond them. And of course, that didn't end up happening, them leaving the station, but it still helped forge their relationship. They, they saw a lot of the universe in the same way. And so it was fun to we to explore that more because it's been a sort of not exactly an on again off again thing, but it's been a sort of a I don't know kind of it's been dealt with casually in the books. It's mentioned here and there that they get together, um, and, and at this point, it's been a long time that they've been together, and something really has to give at this point. It's is 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 a serious relationship? Is it not a serious relationship? What's going on? And Apart from it being a Bajoran and a Ferengi, these are very human uh, themes to explore. These are, are everybody understands these emotions. Everybody understands being in love, wanting to be in love, all of that. So it's great to have characters that you like and and to juxtapose them and deal with all of these things. It's very satisfying as a writer to be able to do that. So. That's how I came at it, and and you're right. In some some regard, the Morn story is kind of a backdrop for uh, the Quark and Roe romance. Yeah, originally I thought I don't know if I see Roe and Quark together. I thought you know, I mean she's Bajoran and and he's Ferengi, and like you said, the the look of Ferengi with the teeth and everything. But but then again, there's Lita and Rom, oh brother. And, uh, you know, they're, they're in a relationship and I'm like, yeah, wait, why can't this work? I mean, it it should work, but it's what I found interesting and and we're going into some spoiler territory here with the book, but what I found interesting was that Roe decided kind of last minute to accompany Quark on his mission to go find Morn. And I thought, okay, now Roe has reached the point where she's ready to just probably tell Quark that, you know what, I'm ready to, you know, let's solidify this relationship. Let's get serious. Let's make this long term. But the opposite happens. She actually turns Quark down. So why do we go that direction with Roe? Well, I mean, it all had to do with her circumstances, too. And, and in truth, if I had my choice, I mean, I guess I do have my choice, but um you, you don't always get what you want when you're writing. Sometimes these characters have lives of their own, and the stories take on their own shapes, and, and you just need to go with them. You know, you know, you can't to satisfy yourself. You can't fight against a story because it will it won't come out well. It won't be believable. It it, it will show the marks of having been shoved, in, you know, a square a square peg into a round hole, and all that. It has to do with the circumstances of Rose, what's going on with Roe, primarily, which is the fact that she developed romantic feelings for somebody else in the time that she was still ostensibly seeing Quark. And so that's kind of a wake-up call for her because she 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 gets hurt, and then she realizes, oh, geez, this is kind of what I've been doing to Quark. So, you know... She's got to she's just got to really undergo some self-examination and and figure out what it is she wants and and how she could uh, you know what she needs to do with Quark and, and with their relationship. And I started to say you know I if I had my way um, I, I think I would like to have them together. I just I sort of like that. It's it's unusual. I guess it's not even that unusual as you said, Rom and Lita. 
um, and you know, Terry Farrell's Jed Zia Dax uh, was happy to date Gallimites who had transparent skulls. So, you know, <laughs> to each their own. Um, but yeah, yeah, it just, it, it's, uh, you also, I also like challenging both myself and sometimes my readers too. Okay, we can get them together and that's fun and satisfying in a certain way, but what happens if that doesn't quite happen? Because life doesn't quite always happen the way we envision it happening or want it to happen. So it's, it's, you know, drama at its heart is conflict. So, you know, you have to have some conflict as well. But it just seemed to me that the, these, this was the place where Roe was at, uh, and this is the place where Quark was at. And, you know, I tried to make their reactions realistic and relatable to a human audience. I don't write so much for Ferengi or Bajorans. <laughs> well, I know Dan's very sensitive, so I'm sure he wasn't happy that they didn't get together in the novel. Right, Dan? <laughs> Well, I mean, yeah, I, I do have to say I was rooting for them, like I said, but, uh, but no, that, yeah. And I, and I mean, I th I think that lends something to the novel though, too, because like you say, it's life and life doesn't always work out the way you want it to. And speaking of this love triangle, kind of the other corner of it, of course, is Altec Dan's and, you know, his kind of date with Roe is interrupted when Kira pays a visit. And so he's, of course, really shocked to see this woman that he knew as Kiva Nora uh, in what ostensibly at this point is Bejor's past, they believe, and, and, you know, what's going on there. And obviously that puts kind of a huge crimp in, in that initial relationship and that sort of thing. What was, um, specifically, I'm kind of interested in Kira's perspective on all of this kind of living this other life but then encountering this person that she knew as this alternate person that she inhabited i guess what was that like kind of writing that dynamic and how she came to the decisions that she made by the end of the novel you know part of the decisions that she made are dictated by the character who she you know that she is and it it's um you know, I, I have some latitude to guide her in certain ways, but I can't do something that's not Kira, you know. And um, I, this could have been a, I mean, it is sort of a love triangle, but it's sort of like the the, the softest pointed love triangle you've ever seen. <laughs> I mean, um, for one thing, these are all adults, right? These people are all educated, professional, um, experienced adults. Actually, I don't know how, how educated Kira was, but but they're all smart people. They're all um, uh, professional people. They 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 know how to conduct themselves as adults, and so it's not like a triangle between a love triangle between te or among teenagers. So uh, there's that to, to take into account, and then there is what you just talked about, which is this is a strange circumstance. I mean, I guess in a human way, imagine you had a dream or a series of dreams in which you had uh, uh, a romance with with somebody and then you woke up and it turned out that person was real and you met them. That's a, okay, wait a minute. I, I mean, I didn't really have a romance with this person, but I kind of, I, in my head I did and I had these feelings that felt real to me. And it's not quite a, a perfect analogy because Kira living as Kiva Nora in seemingly in Bejor's distant past had a romance with Altec Dons. And so she, I mean, she really did have that, but she was also kind of another person. I mean, she was 
conscious and aware, but she didn't remember her life as Kieran Norris. She remembered her life as this other woman. And she had some vague recollections of what went on. And she certainly, the feelings are rekindled within her when she sees Altec for the first time. So, you know, she knows him and it's just, it's weird. It's just strange. It's very, you know, leave it to science fiction. So, yeah, I mean, it's a strange thing to have to try and deal with and try and figure out how, how to go about resolving this. And, and, you know, I don't even know that it is entirely resolved. It's been resolved in a certain way by the end of this book. But, uh, you know, people can break up. People can get back together. People can renew their acquaintance. I mean, whatever. Uh, so, you know, the story is ongoing. I mean, I left it in a, in a certain place that was a, a, a good end point for this story, but there will doubtless be more stories. So you know, what all ultimately happens may yet be seen. I don't know. Well, I hope so. I hope there's more books coming that you're going to write for <laughs> Deep Space Nine. <laughs> I do have uh, uh, another, I can't, I can't say that it's Deep Space Nine or not, but I do have another Star Trek novel that will be out. Uh, it's a January 2018 book, so it'll be out in December. Oh, that's excellent. Yeah, we're excited about that. So there's another question uh, that I do have to ask, and this one I think is kind of on behalf of Matt because uh, he wants to know, uh, what's up with Cisco? Where is he in this story? And might we see him return to Deep Space Nine at some point? Well, we might. Anything <laughs> can happen, especially when you're in in league with the nonlinear wormhole aliens slash profits. But um, <laughs> I will say this, that at the end of Ascendance, which is the previous, my previous Deep Space Nine novel, um, the, the, the Cisco is the commander of, of, a, of the starship Robinson, a galaxy-class starship. His wife and daughter are aboard with him. And at the, at, toward the end of, descend, uh, of Ascendance, Robinson was sent into the Gamma Quadrant on an extended mission of exploration. Now, in the books, we've had a couple of missions into the Gamma Quadrant. There was a, a series of four books called Mission Gamma, which is probably 15 years ago now, um, in real time, um, that uh, in which uh, Elias Vaughn commanded Defiant and took it into the Gamma Quadrant for a three-month exploratory mission. And then more recently, within the last few Star Trek years, uh, you know, in the, with said within the, the time frame of the, the books, uh, Cisco took his starship for a six-month mission, exploratory mission, into the Gamma Quadrant. But now Cisco has taken Robinson into the Gamma Quadrant for at least two years, and possibly three or even longer. But it's it's planned to be a two to three-year mission, depending on what happens. And they're they're traveling in the opposite direction from the Dominion. They don't want to mess with that. The Dominion's seemingly isolationist right now, and nobody wants to get into any kind of a problem with them. So they're exploring. Cisco is aboard Robinson exploring the Gamma Quadrant, the unexplored Gamma Quadrant, right now, at least during the course of the Long Mirage. That's what's happening. I, I don't think... There may be a reference or two to Cisco in there, but I think if there are, they're spare. <laughs> but I would suggest that Cisco has not been written out of the books. He's alive and well and still a great character. 
Yeah, I keep expecting we'll be... I keep expecting a, a book about his adventures in the Gamma Quadrant on the Robinson, but I, it doesn't sound like that's in the plans anytime soon. I it, it may be. Uh, you'll you'll just have to wait and see. <laughs> I um. Uh, I don't. I don't need. Uh, I don't need my editor to uh, uh, get on me for confirming or denying something that I shouldn't confirm or deny. But well, I, I can't I, imagine we would abandon Cisco anyway. We're going to see him at some point. We're going to see Cisco, and and yeah, I, I before too long we'll be seeing Cisco again. Certainly, I mean he's a major character in the series. There's, there's just and he's for me as a writer, I love Cisco. He's just a fascinating character, and and I've really enjoyed exploring him, taking him in unexpected directions and having him deal with all sorts of stuff. Um, I know some readers are averse to that kind of thing, but I I, I like it. I like challenging myself. I like challenging my readers. I like challenging the characters, all while trying to keep them true to themselves. So, yeah, there's no question we have that, that we there's no way we've seen the last of Cisco. He'll be back. Excellent. Well, getting back to uh, the happenings in this story, uh, I have to say, kind of, we're kind of jumping all over the novel here, and we are going to be spoiling bits of it for sure. So, you know, hopefully, everyone listening, if you haven't read the novel, pause the podcast, go out, buy it, read it, come back. Um, very early in this novel, the very beginning, we see, and and it's kind of hinted at, and then there's a bit of a confirmation that it's Morn that's that's in this. Las Vegas setting involved in some kind of shady Vegas dealings. And, you know, from that point, I knew we were in for a wild ride with Morn's disappearance, having something to do with Vic's hologram. And then of course that, that really pays off towards the end of the novel. Where did that initial idea come from to kind of put these two characters together and really um, braid these two stories together that way? You know, I, I guess it came from me um, because I had been seeding these stories for a while now. I mean, Morn uh, disappeared six months after the destruction of the station, and that was, I don't know, four books ago, five books ago of mine, and, you know, seven or eight of Deep Space Nine novels. Um, so I've been, I've been, you know, I would occasionally bring up Morn in, in the other novels and, you know, explore the fact that he was still missing, and I had Quark hiring private investigators, but they were little, just small parts of larger scenes where it just kept the readers aware of what was going on with Morn, but it wasn't a, you know, Morn story. We had other things going on. So, but I kept the story alive because I knew I wanted to deal with it at some point. I like playing a long game. Star Trek lets you do that. Um, I mean, in Ascendance, I pulled together plot elements that I created in Twilight, in Olympus Descending, things that I, you know, started really 15 years ago, and I, I was able to thread them together to create this, what I hope was fulfilling tapestry, fulfilling to readers. Um, so I, I've been playing this sort of long game, intermediate long game with, with these characters to tell these stories. Morn was missing. Um, Vic hadn't been back in two years. You know, he was still stuck in a tester, not having, he was, his program was running, but he wasn't having any interaction with Nog or anybody else outside his program. So I was, I was, I knew I was going to explore that. I just wasn't going to bring Vic back, and that was going to be it. And all was great. So I've been also seeding um, those, you know, that story. You know, the, the, just getting the 
beginnings of that story out in other novels. And in fact, I, I had a chat with, um, oh, I'm trying to remember who it was now. Somebody who wrote another novel, another Deep Space Nine novel, or an element, a, a Deep Space Nine novel, or a novel that had Deep Space Nine elements in it, who needed to, needed Vic for something. And so I, he and I talked because I knew in part where I was going with Vic and our editor didn't want us to be at cross purposes with one another. So, uh, so we talked. And so in his book, he, you know, he has, he deals with Vic's hollow suite program and, and, but he does it in a way that doesn't undermine what I was setting up. So I've been setting up these storylines and of course the Altecdons and Kieran Norris. I've been setting that up since I guess that was Revelation and Dust, I think. So yeah, several the books book ago. The, the fall series, I believe. Yeah. So you know, I've been I've had these three uh stories set up. And you know, we do that as writers, especially in a continuing series, we sort of do that everywhere. We we set up stories we want to tell a complete story in a single novel that has a beginning, a middle, and an end. But because it's an ongoing series, you also want to perhaps pay off stories that have been begun in other novels prior to yours. And you also want to set up storylines for the future for you or other writers to pay off at some point in the future. So I didn't, when I started seeding these stories, I had an idea of what I wanted to do with the, with the various tales but I didn't know completely what I wanted to do. And I didn't even know that I would be the one to do it because there are other writers. So, uh, you know, I had these disparate elements. And as I, as I started to work through the Morn story and the Vic story, I thought, oh, you know what? There's a way to do this to maybe, to maybe, and I actually, I, when I thought about doing it, I was very happy about it. I just, it really made me feel good as a writer. I thought that the, that the readers would love this. I thought it made sense for the characters and I was going to enjoy writing it. And I actually came up with an iteration of how the two stories are connected that I pitched to my editor, Margaret Clark. And Margaret said, yeah, no, that's not happening. And I'm like, well, wait, no. And I was really convinced that I could make this, this work. Um, but Margaret really felt that there was an element of it that no matter how well I wrote it, it just wouldn't be believable. And I disagreed, but I think Margaret was probably right, um, as, as is often the case. She's a, a terrific editor. She really knows her Star Trek, and she has a real sense of, of what plays and what doesn't. And um, so she set me off. She actually had not just uh, the criticism, but also had some ideas of how I might be able to to fix that, and uh, and so I explored those, and finally came up with uh, with what ended up in the book, and and with which she was satisfied as well. So, but I think it's really fun to do that. I think it's fun to watch that as a viewer, to to read it as a reader, and it's certainly fun to write it as a writer. This this commingling of storylines, or 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 this or these two two seemingly separate storylines that that merge and you say oh yes of course that's how how that's why it all worked together that's why it's all related um i mean i try to do that in a sentence where i say you know i went back 15 years for some elements but i you know i try i wanted to pay off the ascendance story i wanted to pay off uh uh, iliana gamore's story there were other things that had happened in the books like the destruction of one of 
the ecosystems of one of Bejor's moons. Uh, I mean, there were just a number of things that I wanted to pay off. Uh, Odo, shapeshifters, the prophets, the celestial temple, the world that Cisco landed on, the, non- the nonlinear nature of it all. And so, yeah, it's fun to, it's fun to find a way to do that, that hopefully, I mean, you're saying that, you know, these two stories are connected. Hopefully they're connected in a way that satisfies readers, but certainly it was satisfying as a writer to write it. Well, as a reader, I can definitely confirm that it was a lot of fun. And I, I, I love that you dropped those hints at the very beginning, because as a reader, I found myself continually throughout the novel going like, well, okay, so how is that, that going to fit into that? What's going on? Where, like, where's Morn? How, how does that fit back in and the payoff was definitely very satisfying so it was definitely a lot of fun i'm glad to hear that you know it's interesting to hear you say that you you sort of you gleaned who the people were and not that it was that hard i mean i set it up but you gleaned who the, the the characters were in the prologue and then it stayed with you for most of the book when i read a book and i read a prologue that's sort of like that sort of out of it's seemingly unrelated to the story that follows um I sometimes do the same thing, but sometimes I just forget it. I just mm-hmm. it just goes out of my head, and I get engrossed in, in the rest of the novel. And, I, and then at the end, I'm like, "Oh yes, right, right, right. There was that scene," <laughs> you know. So mm-hmm. it's interesting to hear you say that you you kept it in mind. And I was obviously, obviously I'm good as a with writer with readers keeping things in mind. Otherwise, I wouldn't have written it in the first place that way. But um, I had fun writing that first scene too. Um, and you know. Since you've gleaned that Morn was one of the participants in the prologue, which is fairly obvious, um, but might not, I don't say it outright, and some people might not get it. I, some readers might just not think about it. But since you have realized that it was Morn in that scene, I had to, I had to figure out some different kinds of ways to have him not speak. <laughs> yeah, I definitely noticed the a little bit of gymnastics there, but it was it was definitely and I do have to say that was actually by the time I got to the end of the prologue, that was one of the big hints. I was like, hey, he never spoke, did he? <laughs> that definitely was more. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's funny, too, because in my in my initial thoughts about the story and, and when I started writing the outline for it, um, I, I wanted to have point of view scenes for Morn. But I'm like, can I do that? Can I really, even if Morn doesn't speak in these scenes, is it, is it unfair to the character and to the reader to, to actually sort of have him saying words in his head? Because even if you don't have him quote, you know, even if I don't quote him speaking or quote him thinking, still, if I'm in his perspective, all the words are sort of his. So it's like, that didn't seem like the right thing to do. I think that's and a good the last thing I, Yeah, I mean, the last thing you want to do is, I mean, that's such a long-running gag. Um, and you could argue that, you know, it's too long-running, it's time to get over it. But I didn't want to be the one to do that. You know, that'd be just like destroying the Rio Grande, the runabout Rio Grande, which is <laughs> was in the, the pilot for Deep Space Nine and has been the only runabout to survive since. We're not going to destroy it. Rule number two of Deep Space Nine, you do not blow up the Rio Grande. Yep, absolutely. And you If you have to go on an away mission, take the Rio Grande. Exactly. <laughs> and rule number three, of course, Morn does not speak, but he does. <laughs> well, I yeah, I mean I've I know in my books I've had him I, I've had him leading a group of people into the bar after he 
did a poetry reading. Um, yeah, I mean, we all, we all have fun with that. We, it's, it's uh, just, it's a, it's a, it's a good gag. It's a night, nothing like a good running gag. I, I'd like the gag to just keep running, you know, cause maybe like in the next book, it's something like, you know, he was at the party too late at night and he lost his voice, you know, like all those like little things, like you just make up <laughs> reasons why we don't hear him or, or something to that effect, you know, but it, it's, I actually, because he's in the last scene, I actually thought uh, one of the things I thought about doing was uh, at the very end of the novel, I mean, like last page of the novel, have him open his mouth to speak and then the novel just end like, like, you know, <laughs> comma, you know, and then Morn said, comma, open print, uh, open quotes. And then that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually really surprised a, an episode of DS9 never did that because, yeah, that would be, you know. He opens his mouth, raises his finger, and then that's Wait, it. I, you know what? I, I know what we need to do with Morn because I can relate to Morn in this way. Get him married, and he can never get a word in. So we always hear his wife talking, but Morn can't <laughs> seem to get a word in because his wife keeps doing all the talking for him. I'm sorry. I'm getting a call waiting. I think it's your wife. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> this is the only time I get to Clearly talk. she does. She clearly doesn't listen to the podcast, does she? Oh, yeah. <laughs> or is this going to be This might be, be edited out. <laughs> no, no. This will be edited in. It will leave the, we don't edit in. We leave it in, but whatever. You're, you're on the own, your own with this one, Bruce. I have no part in this. <laughs> yeah, me either. Is it getting hot in here? I'm getting hot. It's getting warm. Uh, <laughs> well, let's let's do some praying now. Not for me, but let's talk about religion because we get into the whole idea of the false work on Endala, which is the the fifth moon. And I love later in the book how we play this fifth moon into the story and how we resolve the mystery behind this whole false work thing. But now is it the O'Alavaru? Alavaru? Is that how you... The O'Alavaru, yeah. The Alavaru. Yeah, that, that was... Yeah, they were... The O'Alavaru were the followers of Ohala, uh, Ohalu, that was introduced in the very first post-television series novel, which is called Avatar. It's actually a, a, their Avatar book one and Avatar book two by uh, Danielle Perry, which uh, just great books and really set the stage for the, the, the post-television uh, um, literary series. Um, yeah, these they, they, there are these Bajorans, the followers of the writings of Ohalu, who was an ancient Bajoran, uh, whose tenets are that the prophets are not gods, that they are, in fact, just benevolent aliens. And um, they call themselves the Ohalavaru, and they are obviously at odds with the mainstream Bajoran religion. But one of the things that they've been trying to do in, in the books, the Ohalavaru, they've been trying to prove what they believe. Now, you know, somebody trying to prove the existence of God, the non-existence of God on Earth today it seems like that's the analogy, but it's not really because the, the, with the Bajorans, it's a really interesting sort of question to ask because we know for a fact that the Bajoran prophets or the wormhole aliens, however you want to call them, they exist. I mean, you, you could try and talk about God with somebody on earth and somebody can say they don't, that God doesn't exist and somebody can say that he does, but you can't prove either way. Right. But the Bajorans, they know that their their gods or those aliens exist. So it's not just a question of existence. It's a question of what's their nature. Right. And that, that sort of also 
kind of ask the question, what is it to be a deity? What does that mean? I mean, we've explored this in the books a little bit, too, with the founders, right? They created the Jemadar. I mean, they genetically engineered the Jemadar. They created them out of nothing. They don't reproduce. The founders simply create new Jemadar. So are the founders really, do they have a legitimate argument that they are gods to the Jemadar? It's an interesting question. But anyway, in this book, you know, we play we play the Yohalavaru against the mainstream Bajoran religion, and you know, the there there are tensions because they have differing beliefs and things are are getting a little rough on Bajor. And the there's been this discovery by the Yohalavaru on a moon on uh, one of Bajor's moons of this thing that they call the false work, which they believe is. A false work is something that is used in construction. It's something that's built around which another structure can be built. And then that false work is then taken down, typically, or it's it's abandoned. So their belief is that this false work on Andala is an anchor for the Bajoran wormhole. So they're saying that the Bajoran wormhole is a construction project. Not terribly poetic, doesn't really sound like you know, something a god would do. And so their argument is that this is this is proof positive that these are aliens, but they're not deities. And there's, you know, there are some mainstream, mainstream believers who think, well, Jesus, is that right? I mean, it does, for, to some people, it would not be convincing at all, but to others, it might make them start questioning. So there's this whole race of religious dynamic going on that's you know filled with tension on Bajor at this time and uh you know one of the, that's one of the things I actually liked about Deep Space Nine I mean one of the many things is that it didn't shy away from difficult subjects religion being one of them and uh you know it, it we're talking about Bajorans we're talking about you know Cardassians and Ferengi and everybody else but what we're really talking about are humans you know these are very sort of Swiftian, as in Jonathan Swift, sort of Swiftian ways in which to talk about current affairs in in what you know, on Earth today. So, um, you know, that, that's a great power of science fiction. So, yeah, I had a lot, you know, I, I, yeah, we explore the false work. And, and uh, yeah, there's a lot that goes on with that in this novel. It was actually discovered, it was actually discovered previously. Uh, in a in a pre prior book, but we we deal with it here. So they also want to go uh, the Bajorans, the Alavaru want to go and and look at this false work and, and investigate it and kind of mine through it. And the Kai uh, Kai Pralon is okay with that and sending some Vedics and her people to go with them. But some people don't want her to do that. I mean, that's testing their beliefs. Right. And, not, you know, not everybody is comfortable with having their beliefs tested, right? I mean, in real life today, that's true. People don't want their beliefs tested. They they believe what they believe, and if they get facts to the contrary, sometimes they don't admit of the facts. They just want to discard them. And it, it's insecurity. It's fear. Uh, and, you know, you, I would think even in the future you would see some of that. But Kira's an interesting example because Kira's okay with it, uh, with exploring the false work. And, of course, the Ohalavaru want to demonstrate 
that this is proof positive that the prophets are not gods. And the traditional Bajoran believers wanted to discover that, oh, no, it is, if not proof that they're gods, if not proof to the contrary. So they have, you know, they're, they're across purposes, and they all go, they, they're representatives of both belief systems, watching scientists and engineers explore this this false work as to trying to make sure everybody's on the up and up. But Kira is a staunch believer, but she's also an interestingly staunch believer because, at least to me, because she's not scared to examine her beliefs. Um, and she's not scared for several reasons, not the least of which is because she's actually sort of, the word I use is communed. I don't know if that's the right word to use. But that's that's how I think of it. She's communed with the Bajoran prophets, right? She's undergone uh, orb experiences. She's actually been in the wormhole. She actually had contact with the prophets in the books at, at some point. Um, she's told by the prophets that she is their hand, that she has some purpose. They have some purpose in mind for her. So, um, you know, it would be pretty hard for Kira at this point to sort of disbelieve the the nature of her gods. Um, but for all of that, that doesn't mean that she's unwilling to let that notion be explored. She's confident that she's going to be vindicated, but I have to hope that if Kira was given proof that the prophets were not gods, that she would be able to find her way into accepting that fact. And I think she would. I think she would, because I think another reason for, for Kira to be very open to exploring this is that word explore. She's served with Starfleet officers side by side for years, then in Starfleet herself. So I think working with Starfleet and, and, and dealing with other aliens and such has probably opened her mind to going ahead and exploring the unknown and testing her own beliefs because of that. Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. It's really interesting when you think about, about human beings today, because there's, I mean, there's some talk that we're in a, in, in a post-factual America, right? Because it seems as though many people on, on either side um, are unwilling to accept facts, right? That, that um, people believe, instead, instead of believing what's true, they believe what they want to believe, what satisfies them emotionally. And I, I mean, I understand it, but I don't, I don't really sort of intrinsically get it because I mean, this may sound bizarre, but I love, love to find out when I'm wrong, um, which fortunately for me happens quite a bit. But uh, <laughs> it's, if I have a belief, even a vaguely formed belief, or even, you know, on the other side of it, a you know, really strong, well-reasoned belief, and I am given new facts, uh, or, or even for, short of new facts, a new perspective that I hadn't considered before, and I discover that, oh, no, that's not the right way to think about this, uh, or this fact is wrong, and so that changes all of this. I love that. I love that because I don't want to believe things that aren't true, right, or, or even, you know, vaguely a little bit off. I want to, I want to believe what the universe is, you know, I want to believe in what's out there. So, um, I'm not, I'm not scared of being, of finding out that I'm wrong about some things. And I, but I think a lot of people are, you know, and, um, I, you're right. I don't think Kira would be one of those, those people. I mean, she's certainly endured 
a lot more than having her beliefs challenged, right? Or or having or discovering that she, she's wrong. And you go back to an early episode of Deep Space Nine called Duet, in which she was absolutely positive about this particular Cardassian being a war criminal, and 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 feeling vengeance, uh, you know, wanting to have her her vengeance sated. Um, and then discovering that she was really wrong about a lot of things, and it really changes her mindset toward Cardassians in general. And uh, it, that's because she was willing to accept that, hey, you know what, I'm, I was wrong. I was wrong, I, and I was coming at this from a place of fear uh, and, and retribution and all of these negative emotions. And when you know, But when I look at it, yeah, that's not the right way to go about it. I, I wasn't right. So... Um, yeah, I think she she's she's open, she's open to exploring. You're right. Yeah, and I I really appreciate that at at many points in the novel you kind of bring up the fact that you know this is the case not just in religion but in in many other walks of life as well. I mean, you know, there are people that deny that certain historical events happened or happened a certain way and that sort of thing. And I I, I worked as a high school teacher for years, and and I. I love learning and I love learning new things. And like you say, things that might challenge, you know, things that I've believed or held dear kind of thing uh, over the years, you know, that, that to me is part of the journey that human beings are on is, is to learn truth. And this book, I think talks about that in a way that I, I really appreciated personally. Well, good. I'm glad to hear that. I, I, I'm glad that that, that message got out there. I, I... Yeah, I, I I totally agree with you. Well, David, you're wrong. <laughs> and I'm sure it won't be the last. No, I just know you like to hear that, so <laughs> that's why I said it. No, it's funny though. It's funny because you 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 are right though that it does stretch beyond religion. I mean, religion's an obvious place to look for this sort of thing of people believing things irrespective of fact, but it happens in in trivial things too. I mean, look at sports teams, right? I mean. Uh, People are fans of sports teams, and and then uh, an, an athlete on somebody's favorite team is accused of a nefarious crime, a, a domestic abuse, rape, something like that. And the fans of that team immediately say no. No, I, it couldn't possibly be. Why? It's not because it couldn't possibly be. It's because you don't want it to be true, because you want this good player for your team that you root for to keep playing for your team and making it good. <laughs> so, yeah, it's all over the board that people are – are not believing facts that they're believing things that they want to be true. So and I think it's a kind of a, a problem. So yeah, I, I try and bring sort of thematic elements into my novels like that, just to talk about things because I like doing that. <laughs> I think we need to explore. Excellent. Well, one kind of final thing about this novel that I found really interesting was the title and the long mirage, it can kind of apply to a lot of aspects of the story. I mean, we've got this this false work that they think represents one thing, but actually turns out to represent another. We've got, you know, Morn kind of uh, chasing this uh, means to help Vic. And, you know, that's kind of just always on the horizon, but disappearing. And Vic's life. What kind of led you to choose the title The Long Mirage, and uh, where did the idea for the title come from? Uh, the title came from me, and I, it was because of the aspects you talk about, but it also had to do with Vic's sentience, too, right? 
is Vic sentient or is he not sentient? And if you if you come out the other end thinking, well, Vic is just a program where he's not actually, I mean, he's programmed to seem like he's self-aware, but he's not genuinely self-aware, then that's also a long mirage. That's been a mirage for a long time, too. So, there, yeah, there are several aspects of the novel that are deserving of the title. And when I first came up with the title, the book, the book, I'm satisfied with the book, and I hope readers really like it, but I, I sort of had envisioned it differently uh, initially. I had kind of sort of envisioned it as, as writing it like a sort of a, uh, an old-fashioned, you know, hard-boiled tech detective story. And I don't, think it, I don't think it quite came off that way. There were just too many other aspects outside of the, the, the detective chase um, that just didn't allow me to do that. Uh, and The Long Mirage sounded like one of those titles, right? The Big Clock, you know, that kind of thing. The Long Sleep, whatever, you know, The Big Sleep. Um, it, it just it sort of had that uh, that flavor to it. And also, when I, I wanted, you know, because of the different aspects of the book that are important that you just enumerated, and then I talk about with Vic, um, I wanted something that, that evoked what my title evokes. And when I came upon, when I sort of just, derived the term the long mirage, which is an unusual phrase. It's not a phrase that's in the vernacular that that people hear. It's just something I made up. Um, I don't know. I just, I, 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 I liked it a lot and grew to like it more. And I kept looking for another title, but I, I just thought, you know what? I, I like, I like this. It's, I know it's, it may seem a little bit odd for a Star Trek novel. It doesn't quite have that, that flavor to it. Uh, of Star Trek, but you know, I I don't know that all of my titles are Star Trekky in nature. I don't, although you know, the original series had some very, you know, let that be your last battlefield, and um, uh, for the world as hollow and I have touched the sky. They've they've got their share of of, of sort of poetic leaning titles. Um, anyway, so yeah, it was just me trying to figure out something that would fit the themes that would convey the themes of some of the major themes of the book. And, and reflect some of the, the, the plot lines. So, as you indicated yourself, so um, that's where that came from. Well, I think you know at this point, Star Trek is is so many different things that uh, yeah, it, it definitely fits, and it definitely fits what we get in the novel. So, I, I think it's a good title. <laughs> Awesome. Well, why don't we uh, close out if you could let our readers know maybe uh, anything you've got on the horizon, uh, hopefully not mirages that uh, you're maybe working on right now, Star Trek or otherwise. Well, at the moment, I just actually started writing a mainstream novel uh, that's just uh, pure spec, but I'm, I'm working on it. Uh, it just like last night started working on it. Um, and uh, I do have, as I said, another Star Trek novel coming out. It's a January 2018 book, which means last week in December it'll be out. And um, I just went live with my website. That's something. Um, and that's D-R-G-I-I-I, as in D-R-G the third, D-R-G-I-I-I dot com. If people want to look there, um, I've got uh, – I've got information about all my books on there and I've got information about other things that I'll be doing. Actually in May, uh, 11 other Star Trek writers and myself are going to be showing up at a place called Star Trek original set tours, original series set tour. 
which is in upstate Ooh. New York, and it's a permanent installation of recreated original series sets. Oh man, that's exciting! <laughs> yeah, and it's not—it's not—it's not something that moves. It's a permanent installation. These are not. These are not designed to be stuck on trailers and carted around the country. Isn't it like so, in a shopping uh, center or something? Is that what I saw? Or? That that I cannot tell you. Okay. I do not know. But I've seen photos, and it looks pretty spectacular. Um, so a bunch of us are meeting there, and on, on a Saturday afternoon in May, I think it's May 6th, from I think 1 to 6, we'll be signing books and doing a Q&A and – uh, just having a, a meet the authors kind of event. So if anybody is in the area, I mean, it's in upstate New York, so it's not the easiest place to get to in the world. But uh, but a dozen Star Trek writers are descending on Ticonderoga, New York, in 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 May. So, um, oh, man. but you can also get more information about that. Actually, probably five minutes after I get off this uh, interview with you guys, I'll post something about that on my website. But uh, you, so you can find out, you know, events that I'll be doing. Uh, and I've also started to blog. Uh, I didn't do that for a long time just because I wasn't sure what it was, what I could possibly say that people would want to read. And for all I know, people don't want to read what I'm writing. But I've got, I've got actually got four different blogs. I've got a blog about baseball because I'm a huge baseball fan and I play baseball. And so I, I write about baseball. And I just, I've just started. I say I just went live with the website uh, about a week and a half ago. So, um, so I've got a baseball blog. I've got a, a blog on film because I love movies. And so I'll be doing. I actually wrote a blog entry about uh, the Oscars this year, and then I just wrote a review of a movie. And I'll probably be doing a lot of, of movie reviews on there. And I've got a, a blog about writing because I kind of like writing. And uh, like talking about it. So, uh, and then I just have a general sort of, I call it world blog. So, if anything happens in the world that I feel like talking about, that's where I can go. And I don't, I actually haven't written anything for that yet, but they're all on my website. So, drgii.com. And um, there's a way to contact me through the website if you, if readers want to, if they have questions, comments, vagueness, givings. <laughs> um, so, I invite people to go there. Excellent. And is there anywhere else on uh, online that uh, readers can follow you if they want to? Yeah, I'm in Facebook, uh, uh, D-R-G-I-I-I um, on Facebook. And I think it's David R. George III on Twitter. And um, on Tumblr, I think it's David R. George III on Tumblr. And also on, I just got on Pinterest as well. I think that's <laughs> D-R-G-I-I. I don't know. All of these links to the various social media are also uh, available in the bottom of all my pages on my website too if i got any of those details wrong they, they can go through my website to get to get to that so um yeah i'm all over the place excellent well thank you so much for coming on the show uh like like we said i think bruce and i both really enjoyed this novel and i, I think our listeners will too because it's a really excellent continuation of the deep space nine story and man i can't wait to see where it goes from here yeah, me too. And and I appreciate the invitation. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, Bruce. Appreciate your questions and your interest. And it's always a pleasure to talk to you guys. Well, as always, and this is going to sound like a broken record, <laughs> but as always, we always enjoy having the authors on. It's such like I could just sit here and say, okay, David, just 
start telling me everything about the novel and I just sit back and relax and just listen to him go on because everything he's talking about is stuff I wanted to hear. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and, and again, like you said, broken record, but that is one of the true joys of being able to do this is to be able to get to the, to talk to the authors and really dig into what goes into making these Star Trek novels that we very obviously love, uh, or we wouldn't be doing this week after week. So, you know, always a lot of fun. And I have to say what makes that possible is our associate producers, those who have supported us on Patreon. Uh, and if you go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Trek FM, you can help out with the show as well. You'll find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels, along with all of the great perks that we have for you if you choose to donate. These perks include early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on our content development team, and more. We really appreciate any support you can give us, and we hope you'll join the team. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. And of course, there are a bunch of people who have already made that contribution and helped us out, and they are our associate producers here on Literary Treks. So we'd like to thank Ken Tripp, Greg Rosier, and Brandon Shamatala for their support of the Trek FM network, and specifically for their support of Literary Treks. Now, Bruce, when you're not sitting in a French theater across from Morn, wearing his slightly askew beret, listening to the dulcet tones of one Vic Fontaine, where can we find you? Wow. Uh, well, yeah, not doing that. Um, I would be, <laughs> you can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex, and you can find me on the Star Wars Report podcast talking about, of all things, Star Wars. And uh, then you can always find me in the Babel Conference, even if I'm not posting anything. Oh, yeah, I'm reading. I'm reading everything you people are posting in there. Mm -hmm. And even on that refrigerator, looking at all your pictures. So, Dan, when you're not on a shuttlecraft with Ro Laren being dumped by her, where can people find oh, you? That hurts. You know, why why'd you have to bring that up? Well, I'll be uh, I'll be pining over love lost with Ro Laren on Twitter. And you can find me at Kurtrats. That's K-E-R-T-R-A-T-S. You'll find me scrolling through the pictures from our relationship and sobbing to myself and that those will all be found on Instagram. I'm Kurtrats47 on there and I'll probably be making lovesick videos wondering what's right, what's wrong in the world and how can I get my love back on youtube.com slash Kurtrats Productions. Actually, just kidding. I pretty much just talk about Star Trek. Thank you all so very much for listening and until next time, live long and read on. You call that light reading? To each his own, number one.